You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. I'm Simon. And uh, tonight we're all, uh, well, it's one of those weeks we've got to get this done in a hurry. So if this is a slightly shorter <laughs> podcast, uh, 60 seconds, Simon, on the subject of the Deadly Assassin. What a great, great story. I have very fond memories of Deadly Assassin the first time I saw it, mainly because of the... Uh, the master looking like a piece of ratty <laughs> old bacon um, with a couple of ping pong balls. Um, but a couple scared... of half eggs, surely. Half egg, yeah. He looks like a salad. He does. He looks like a <laughs> six-day-old salad. He does. Um, <laughs> but it petrified me at the time of, and that would have been the first time I'd seen the master, obviously. I wasn't old enough to see any of Roger Delgado, so that's who the master was. So when he came back in Keeper of Traken, I knew exactly who it was. Um, and I remember kind of liking Tom Baker going around in a floppy shirt. I've always had a thing about... Um, Tom Baker with a floppy shirt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like Buccaneers and things like that. I thought that was brilliant. Just to see... The pirate doctrine. shirt. Yes, pirate shirt. Um, I'm not doing very well on my own here, am I? Um, yeah, so I loved it. Loads of Time Lords. Um, I as a kid, you love the Time Lords. I know now we sort of think of them, and the show's better without them. But at the time, it was great seeing all that. I think, and um, it was just a really good story. Oh God, I'm being really rubbish here. I haven't got to stop watching it. I think we've probably done a minute. Lee, Genesis of the Daleks. Have we wow. done that one before? Never mind. Done. Go for it again. You sure? <laughs> I've probably done that before. In fact, um, it's a, it's a difficult one. This because it's just so darn good in every respect. Bar the Clam, which I think I mentioned last time. Um, I love Genesis of the Daleks for a lot of reasons, and one of them is I was quite fixated with wartime as a kid, the First World War in particular. And the first time I saw that wasn't actually at the time of transmission. It was on, I think it was possibly a pirate video in the 80s um, from a shop in Boscombe that this guy was just pirating all the Doctor Who videos, uh, the, you know, all Doctor Who stories. And I remember watching it, it was grainy and it's really bad quality. And it just left this kind of indelible impression of gloom and it was just fantastic. I loved it. Spot on. And my brother had the record, the LP. That was uh, pretty good as well. But that's, I'm just talking about me again, <laughs> not the actual episode. It was great. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty I good. It's it Terry Nation's yeah, better ones, mm. I think, but... Again, yet another rehash of the kind of stuff. I'm not entirely convinced Genesis of the Daleks is as great as people think. There seems to be a lot of running backwards and forwards and yeah, up and down corridors it, in that story. There, as... there is, but I think it's kind of peppered with really interesting people and characters and great actors. And that's, well, that's what I, I mean. Liked it. It's yeah. like, yeah. well, you've got that layer. We were talking about this last week, or I was. You've got that layer of interesting characterization, but underneath it, the story. Well, the story's good, but the plot's not so good. And yeah. um, that brings us to Graham Williams. There's a particular reason I brought up those two stories, and I suppose if we've got to <clears throat> get on with this in a bit of a hurry, okay, I think I had three points that I wanted to make sure I brought up at some point tonight, so I'll bring up the first one first, and it's this. During the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era that preceded it, you had, apart from writers like Chris Boucher, who would write The Face of Evil and The Robots of Death, which are both completely alien world stories. But apart from that, you had a lot of Robert Holmes. Almost all of his stories were on Earth. A lot of the stories that he was left with at the end of um, Barry Letts and Terence Dix's time, season 12. Don't worry about it, Simon. It's just a pet. <laughs> okay. Pet's gone. <laughs> A lot of the stories they were left with in season 12 were either on Earth or to do with Earth or to do with the Time Lords. The Hinchcliffe Holmes three years is almost entirely Earth or Time Lords. 
apart from a couple of other writers who came in and did something else. Then you go to the Graham Williams era, and all of a sudden they're out in space, and a lot of stories in the Graham Williams era have got no connection with Earth whatsoever, or even if they have, like Nightmare of Eden, it's, you know, quite a remove. How many stories during those three years are actually set on Earth? Can you say off the top of your head? Can I say off the top of my head? One or two, maybe? City of Death? Shudder. Shudder Stones wasn't transmitted. Well, okay. No. How many <laughs> transmitted stories in Stones three years? Stones yeah. And um, City of Death, that was only two. Mm. Hand of Fear? Well, actually, during the Robert Holmes bit, right at the start, you had... No, Hand of Fear. <laughs> bloody hell. So I was just waiting. You took your time. <laughs> That's what we're going to have every time Lee says something (laughs) funny tonight. (laughs) At least we haven't got the uh, the silence this time. Um, No, uh, you've got Horror of Fang Rock and Image of the Fendal, but those are kind of hangovers with Robert Holmes. Mm. But as soon as you get Graham Williams doing the Graham Williams thing with his own script editors, you're down to the Stones of Blood and City of Death. Mm. And that's it. That is probably the most sustained period of away from earth stories in the entire show's history uh space opera mm. yeah well not space <clears throat> opera space opera is when you're moving around from one planet to another in the course of the same story yeah maybe he wanted to do that in his mind yeah okay perhaps but i mean do, do we think there's a reason behind um, this i don't know i don't know actually what was the reason it's not to do with because <clears throat> i mean if you're going out into space Surely that would be a more expensive jaunt, and they didn't have a lot of money. In fact, I think they probably had less than they. Is it the Star Wars effect? No, I'm not saying there was a reason. I'm saying, is there a reason? I'm just thinking, what year did he come in? Well, he took over in 19, well, probably late 76. His first season started it towards the end of 77. He's smack on the beginning of Star Wars. Yeah, Star Wars didn't appear in Britain until 78 or very late 77, January Mm. 78. Most people were becoming aware of it. Or I think December 77 it opened. Hmm. I don't think you can claim... Well, that's the thing. People say oh, it was a Star Wars effect on like K9, Blake 7, all this kind of stuff. You know, if a film comes out, it doesn't have a trickle-down effect to stories that have been written and conceived a year before they were on television hmm. until 1979. There's no real Star Wars effect until season 17, probably. Yeah, but that does feel a bit like that, doesn't it? Well, the only effect Star Wars really had was that in showing up Doctor Who for being as cheap (laughs) as it was. And actually, Graham Williams did a good job Mm. with his special effects. The one thing, you look at Invisible Enemy and whatever people think of the story, the one great thing about that is the model effects. Mm -hmm. And there's quite a lot of that throughout the whole period. There is. There's a lot of experimentation as well, isn't there? And that was just, I think it was forced. He had to he had to do a lot of this CSO experimentation with things like Underworld and, you know, when you're out in space, you well, have to do... That's just one story. Yeah, but also looking through screens and things like that on spaceships, all of that kind of business. Yeah, I guess that's kind of standard, though. Yeah, maybe. I mean, Barry Letts was the innovator for CSO. <laughs> and then they Damn were just kind of left with it. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what the reason is why he decided to take it out to it. Maybe he just wanted to do something a lot different. Does does space offer more comedy? Because that's what he was given on a plate, wasn't he? He had to do more comedy and less violence. Well, no, I don't think he was told to make it funnier. He was told... Right, this was going to be my second point. Okay. Last week, I was talking about the layers that you get with Hinchcliffe and Holmes. And number one is the horror. And number two is the characterization and the dialogue. And number three is the story, the plot. And I was saying a lot of the time, the stories don't actually add up to much, but because the rest of it is so good, mm. you know, you don't you don't even notice, let alone care. Well, he was told to take the horror out, wasn't he? And if that is your first layer, layer mm. and you're told to get rid of the first layer, then it's, it's so easy and such a cliche to say, oh, he took the horror out and put comedy in. Well, that's absolutely not the case, is it? He did The Stones of Blood, which is Dennis Wheatley, pretty much, isn't it? So it is absolutely not the case that he took horror out of Doctor Who. Mm. But what he did was he took that layer of, you know, absolute kids on the edge of their seats, pants wedding, 
frightening stuff out. And yes, yeah. it's funnier, but not because Graham Williams made it funnier, but because Tom Baker had been in the job too long and he was losing it. Yeah, I mean, the the violence and all of that, the Mary Whitehouse effect, I'm sure had a, a reason. He's not being funny anymore because nah. I've got this thing and he oh, no. knows that he'll get the sharp end of it. <laughs> Um, Mary Whitehouse, you know, that I was going to say the experience and that was a comedy show from the 90s. But, uh, no, she had an effect, definitely, because obviously you had to, like you say, they stripped the horror layer away, but also the violence layer as well. That all went hmm. until Saywood got in and, and did it all again, <clears throat> with nastiness included. But, um, I forgot what I was going to say now. Oh, um, that was the thing with Hinchcliffe I really felt like the characters were actually in trouble they're in danger and even watching it as an adult you can you look at it and think oh imagine that the kids are probably thinking will the doctor or Sarah survive this or that you know it had a real element of proper storytelling um in the serial kind of storytelling whereas Graham Williams's era I didn't feel any point that there was much threat, and the, and obviously Tom Baker and the Doctor mm. was a bit more powerful and all empowering, and he could do what he wanted to do. And there was a lot of scene yeah, stealing and all this. Yeah, sort of, but, it just didn't mm. feel like there was any real danger. Stones of blood. It's not the all powerful Doctor that's one the quite problem because the Doctor always solves it anyway, and you know he's going to solve it. The trouble is when Tom Baker's not taking the script seriously, and it almost adds a layer of unintentional postmodernism. Where everybody in the entire production, but it does. It everybody does. in the entire production is not taking it as seriously as they should be, and then, and it, uh, with the best of intentions start hamming it up, mm-hmm. which doesn't necessarily mean that they're taking the piss out of the material, mm-hmm. because I don't think a lot of them were taking the piss out of the material. Obviously, you've got people like Graham Crowden who weren't, but then you look at something like the Stones of Blood that we've just mentioned. Nobody in that. Um, production is taking the piss out of the material but at the same time you've got like the character of Amelia Rumford right and the um, what's the name the one who plays the villain the mm. Kylech yeah. or whatever it's called yeah you know there's a level of arch villainy amongst mm. the villains mm. now and amongst the supporting cast Amelia Rumford right mm. she's not having it up well, no. she's not taking the piss but she, but her perform. There's an archness in her performance. Mm. There's a level of postmodernism in all the performances that the performances are performances for the camera, which is not necessarily what you had before. You did have a bit of that. You always do in Doctor Who. That's been going on right since the very start, pretty much. But when everybody's doing it. It's, it, it looks better and it always works better when you get the actors taking it seriously and Tom Baker can do what he likes. Because I mean, you see that with Julian Glover when he's um, uh, you know, doing his acting in front of Tom Baker and you just think, this is, this is perfect. And well, who's the old lady you just mentioned then? Amelia Rose. Yeah, the... I thought she was playing it to the kids. She knew it was a children's show and it felt like a children's TV performance. Whereas, you know, there are other actors that take it more seriously. And then when you've got Tom just messing around, it doesn't matter so much because you've, you've got the cast being solid. No, that's the trouble. If Tom's messing around and nobody else does, it becomes even more apparent that he's messing around. <laughs> uh, no. Like when? Well, you just said it. City of Death. Yeah, but how good is but that? But then you also <laughs> said that um, Julian Glover's taken it seriously and his performance is as arch as they come. <laughs> No, what I mean is it's not it's not patronising. No, it's not, because he plays it so arch that Tom yeah. Baker can play up to that archness. And, and let's not forget City of Death is, if you're looking at a comedy story, then that's probably Yeah, good. but I mean, they're all, sorry, okay, they're all taking they're it seriously. They're all arching off They're all taking it seriously yeah. then. Um, they are taking it seriously. Even if they're adding that element of comedy, even Duggan, you know, for goodness yeah, sake, you look yeah. at him and I would say he's still not being, he's still just slightly out of the kids' TV acting. He's, he's probably a bit more Hitchcock Hiker's Guide to the Galaxy, actually, in Blake 7, possibly. Hmm. I'm not so sure about Blake 7. Maybe Hitchcock Have you not seen Blake 7, the comedy? <laughs> I don't think Blake 7 was deliberately a comedy. That's the point. <laughs> um, is there an argument, just trying to think back to the stories, that there's uh, a lot less OB work? Because it is on other planets, the only thing you get out of the studio is a bit of um, quarry stuff. 
so you, therefore you've got that detachment from real, real life and I imagine actors to a certain degree would get a little bit stir crazy stuck in the studio all the time well I'm not sure it's like the earlier in the season the more OB work and the later in the season the less there is yeah. I mean the underworld and uh, what was the oh Sunmakers that's all got a lot of um, OB work inside the well not OB work but film work outside yeah, yeah. inside the uh, a lot of the corridors oddly enough if you're going to go out and do uh, <laughs> if you're going to take a film camera somewhere where do you take it to a corridor I suppose invasion of time <laughs> all around the the bars well, the wherever it is where was it again yeah but you know what when I was a kid I loved that because yeah. I like the idea that the TARDIS had all that stuff inside it it was yeah. like an old building. I think when you <laughs> I think when you're like eight or something you don't even notice that it's been filmed at a location. You just think that they've built it all for the, you know, the swimming baths. If you're young enough, you don't think that swimming bath just a swimming bath they managed to find with a camera. You think, my God, they've built this, you know, to be the inside of the TARDIS. Mm -hmm. Amazing. No, you're right. As a kid, you don't notice that. You don't notice the jump between video and film either, where... Why I've only I only just I've only just worked out why it looks different. I know it's weird, isn't it? It is. <laughs> it's plainly obvious, but as adults, we've just been you know. No, I'm, I'm not going to believe that it's it's film and video stuck together really badly. I'm just not going to believe it. <laughs> it looks great as a kid. You don't question it, and that's, mm. that's how a lot of TV was filmed then. It's completely different now, and whenever people sit down and watch the old ones again hang on why is it jumping well, now that's what Finn used to with say video filming they re they drop a frame don't they to make it look like film all the time well the way it's uh, I forget what the technical that's expression is technical. but video works at 50 frames per second or mm. or is it 48 whereas 48 yeah whereas no it's 50 because it's it? TV which is 25 oh yeah um, whereas the film runs it on TV 25 Mm. frames per second and the video has like a motion shot in between all the static oh, shots yeah, yeah, yeah. so they take out all like the motion shots and then vidfire with yeah. the old dvds the old stories on dvd they put them back in mm. because obviously these were transferred to film that's why there's a sometimes there are sequences particularly film sequences that look really really odd and kind of shoddy on some of those old black and white ones mm. because the film was slight the, the film camera that they filmed it onto to make the transfer for overseas sales mm. was out of sync with, with the, the film version that the video camera had caught in the first place. Yeah. So you're kind of catching. So the film transfer is kind of catching <laughs> a motion shot where there wasn't a motion shot where mm. it should be a still shot. Mm. And so to transfer it back, there's not really a lot you can do with that. So you've got motion shots on motion shots. It's just, mm. and so it does, so there are certain sequences in some of them that just look awful. So I wonder if somebody's going to go out and get those old Tom Bakers and uh, <clears throat> and maybe drop a few frames out of the um, out of the video sequences and make it all looking like film, or the opposite, make it all look like a video. Well, smooth it up. I don't think they will be, because they've finished. <laughs> there will finished. be a fan out there somewhere that will do it, I guarantee it. Oh, I thought you meant, you know, the DVD people. Oh, well, no, they won't, will they? No, and <laughs> fans could only do it if they had access to this equipment. Or oh, the will. It's fairly secret, isn't it, what they do to the like the latest series to make it look like film. I know it's not just a case of dropping frames, it's a case of um, they do something else, I'm not sure what. In the... Um... Oh, what's it called with the uh, the color? Uh, oh, what the grading? The grading, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it's just grading and drop frames. Is it? Uh, yeah. Well, I think maybe there's something else. I, I don't know enough about it, but there's something about the Blu-ray as well. That haven't they got to film it in a particular way so the the, the actual high definition comes out as well. So it, it looks different on my TV, and I haven't got a high definition TV. Yeah, right. No I don't idea. know. No Have you got idea. a Blu-ray player? No, OHDTV. Oh, what do you mean it looks different? I don't know. We'll stop now because we've all got different tallies and, and yeah. I haven't caught up with the world yet. Uh, Stephen Moffat does it. Well, 
the people who work for Stephen Moffat do a lot differently from the ones who worked from Russell T Davis. Mm. Have you watched the first series? Yeah. The Christopher Eccleston one lately. I watched Rose about two weeks ago. Mm. And how fuzzy is the picture how on that? How dated does it suddenly look? <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah, but that's only that first series because yeah. they stopped doing whatever it was they were doing for that first series when Tennant came in. And then the Tennant ones... You mean like a soft focus? There was a yeah, yeah. There's a slight soft focus to it. Mm. Yeah, I noticed that. I'm not really sure why. No, no. Because... A bit like every time a woman came on screen on Star Trek, isn't it? They would... Yeah, well, it's like that all the way through, Rose, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, And those other stories. Yeah, yeah. Mm. No, I don't know, but it gives it that very distinct quality to that run of stories, doesn't it? Yeah, but not a good one. They look like uh, the transfers of things like Terror of the Autons and the Time Monster... (laughs) By comparison, they do. Mm. And then uh, with Stephen Moffat, inspired that, I mean, not entirely because of the fact that it's in HD, all of a sudden it's pin sharp because the way they film it has changed quite a bit. They're mm. using a lot of different, well, they're using different cameras. Mm, they yeah, changed all the cameras. Kind of what I meant, yeah. But they also using a lot more handheld. Russell C. Davis was adamant from the start. He didn't want handheld. Oh. And the only time I. Obviously, there's some handheld because sometimes you just can't not. Mm. But the only time where there's deliberately handheld that's handheld for effect is in the poisoning sequence in the Unicorn and the Wasp. And that was the but only what time... was his reason then for not using handheld? Well, in spite of what people said, what and I mean, having watched the stories, I don't know why people still say this, but everybody assumed that Russell T. Davis was going to do this ultra-realistic set on a council estate kind of... But it's not. Mm. I mean, there's a world of difference between EastEnders and Coronation Street, right? And there's a world of difference again between Coronation Street and Hollyoaks, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And Doctor Who, out of, you know, that kind of... Those different levels of realism when it comes to council estates and... I mean, Russell T. Davis did a great big comic strip caper that mm. just happened to be set in the city. It's like this big urban comic strip. Mm. It's more like kick-ass than it's like EastEnders, <laughs> right? Mm. It's definitely a million miles away from Dark Knight Rises and all that kind of, you know, mm. serious shit. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but Rusty, it's set on a council estate, but never once... During the whole course of those first two years, do you ever look at the character of Jackie and think she'd be remotely at home on the set of EastEnders? No, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I think she would, actually. No, I know what you mean. She's almost like a... Um, kind well, of EastEnders a is all version. doom and gloom and no jokes, isn't it? Oh, it is. EastEnders is, yeah. It's disgusting. Right, well, Jackie's all jokes and no doom and gloom. Yeah, yeah. she's the happy side of EastEnders. She takes me back to the good days of EastEnders when Nigel was on it. <laughs> Oh God, Nigel! <laughs> he was brilliant. It was any the only good thing on EastEnders, and they used to do <clears> funny <throat> things. They used to play jokes on each other, m- m- more like Carol- Coronation, Cora, more like Cora. Do you know every time I write Cora for Starburst, some bugger <laughs> changes it to Cory. <laughs> uh, if the editor's listening to this, It'd be Microsoft Word, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It's Cora. It's short for Cora Nation Street. Anyway, enough. This is not. No, I know. Planet. Just, while we're off subject, just briefly, any have you seen this box set they're putting out in America of um all seven series upgraded to Blu-ray? They're putting out in America. No. Yeah. With a sonic screwdriver. Yes, that's <laughs> it. Yeah, I mean, I've seen. I've got one Blu-ray, which is the um. Oh God! The next Doctor, up res. Right? Oh yeah. right. They yeah. they did a box set of the specials. Yeah, yeah. I think it was the next Doctor, wasn't it? Prior to Planet of the Dead. Have you got the others on Blu-ray though? The Stephen Moffat ones. Yes. Oh, when you said I've got one Blu-ray, what you meant was you've been got one Blu-ray Sorry, that's been up up resed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can tell. Yeah, well, of course you can. It's mm. not like you can. Mm. Take no, no, you can't original inject some magic detail. So I'm just wondering, would I want those other ones up res? Well, that'd be interesting to see what the Eccleston series. Well, this is about. what made me think of it. Yeah, mm. I think the point is, 
if you've got a Blu-ray player, you're going to put your DVDs into a Blu-ray, right? Yeah. You're going to put your DVDs into the Blu-ray player and play them. Yeah. And it's going to do the upscaling in the D- in the Blu-ray player. Right? You've got a decent Blu-ray player. It'll upscale it quite well anyway. Yeah, but probably not quite as well as the upscaling that's taking place on the discs mm, because yeah. if the Blu-ray player is doing it, it's doing it as it goes, whereas yes. these have been professionally upscaled. Mastered, yeah. So, these are, so in spite of the fact that they weren't made in HD... There's still going to be slightly better quality than if you just put your DVD into the Blu-ray player. And if you've got a Blu-ray player and you watch these things on Blu-ray, that's all you're going to do anyway. Mm. So you might as well have the upscaled versions on the Blu-ray. In theory, less compression as well. So less pixelation. Shall I read you what Graham Williams said? Go on. I I read this on the internet, so it's got to be true. It says, It all went wrong right from the start. When I was told to make the show more funny and less violent. Unfortunately, this would have required a lot of money, of which we had practically sod all. Tom Baker, however, thought it was a splendid idea, and kept putting in all these bad puns and terrible jokes, which didn't really get any better when I brought Douglas Adams in. Where does that come from? Well, that came from Tinternet. It's in quotes, so I presume he said it. Yes, but whereabouts on the internet? I don't know. Because it's, it's, it's about, it was about three depth. different places, but um, picky licky wicky. I don't know when it came. No, it wasn't. It was something from some other one. It was quite a good source, but I can't remember where it was from. I'm afraid. HP. Very good. Where's that? <laughs> I'm just looking at the rest of it. He's been reading out from the rest of it and making out that it was his own opinions. <laughs> what? <laughs> that that top bit is my opinions. You daft. Oh, bugger. okay. <laughs> but do you have That's to write the bit it? Yeah, yeah, afraid so. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> No, but the the bottom parts of of that bit of paper that you've got in your hand were just uh, little simple facts, which which interest me actually. I just like the fact that he lived in in the latter part of his life before he died in 1990 in a I think it was a hotel that he ran called Hartnell Hotel. Do you know where it was? Tiverton. Mm. Yeah, just on the road from where we are now. Yes. Well, another. There you are. See. So technically, Jr. Was this a less successful era of Doctor Who? Did the ratings go down or did they kind of plateau? Or Oh, that's a complicated question to answer. I also have to point out, Lee, that in a quote like that, you're kind of giving broad strokes, right? That's, that was what was written down. He oh, said it. God. Probably an interview with a fan team. Are you I don't really know. being that literal? Yeah, that's what I that took it. <laughs> that's what was. Like, he obviously like, are you going to make a? Are you going to make an entire sixty-minute podcast like out of three tech. lines of quote that you've picked up <laughs> off the internet? No, you didn't I even. Gonna, I was going to throw them in in the quiet bits. Like Dan Pap told me, so it must be true. <laughs> Listen, I like internet. Oh, and so does most people. <clears throat> I don't go to Wiki though. <clears throat> Why? Because a lot of that could be made up, as we well know. I'm not saying that's made up. I'm just saying it's generalisation. He's just he's yeah that, he's taken his entire three years of working paragraph. on Doctor Who yeah. and he's whittled it down into mm. three sentences. It's, Do you think his entire three year were exactly <laughs> like he said there? I don't know. We can't ask him. But uh, yeah, somebody interviewed him, and that was the answer he gave. That's probably what he had in his back pocket to say to everybody when they asked him, because he's probably fed up with being exactly. It's a fair point. He's probably been um, in the years away from the TV series. He's been thinking about it, and you do that, don't you? Kind of consolidate your three years, and that's that's the points he's come to, I guess. But he kind of, and you also take things. I mean, this is very true of some of the people who worked on Doctor Who because they would be asked the same questions over and over and over and over again, and you kind of. Things that start out as just a way of answering a question by sort of, you know, if somebody asks you a question that's got a really complicated answer, the first time you answer it, you get to the end of your answer and you think, I'm not going through that again. And then you get asked the same question later on the same day. And gradually you manage to find a way to encapsulate all that information in something that's short and pithy. And that's basically what Graham Williams has done there. He's encapsulated <laughs> a lot of information, Lee, in something that's short and pithy. It is short and pithy, <clears throat> but it is his words. <clears throat> so, yeah. Okay, fair enough. You take <laughs> over and you let me know what you think about the Graham Williams zero. What now? Yes. What? Okay, well, I agree with a lot of what you just said there. 
that the violence was toned. We've done all this already at the beginning of the podcast. But um, about your ratings thing, yes. I mean, there was it is complex and it's difficult to know whether it was actually pop was it popular with the audience there's an audience research wasn't there i don't know whether it was popular or not because what they were seeing what the audience was seeing what we were seeing as kids you know was a different thing adults and children children i think we all loved it thought it was great fun monsters all that sort of stuff lots of monsters nymon as adults maybe they were thinking it was a little bit cheap a bit pants compared to say like three years ago when we had daleks and i mean i would imagine something like the key to time would have been fairly popular yeah I don't know. I mean, but then you've got the, you know, when it came to the end, the J&T era, and everything came in and everything was changed. So was that change to try and freshen it up, to try and get the audience back on top? I don't know. But I think you're mistaking the general public for fandom. Fandom have grown up with the show and yeah. are so close to it that they notice things like a change in quality. We'll look at something like the Graham Williams era and say, I don't like it being funny. I prefer it when it was scary. Whereas the general audiences at home like to laugh. Mm. And were laughing along with Tom Baker. And probably, for a lot of them, they probably thought it was one of the best periods of the show ever, which is borne out in the viewing figures. Mm. The viewing figures did go down a bit after Tom Baker's heyday, which was the first three years. I mean, that was an unparalleled period of success mm. that's never been sustained anywhere in the show's history, quite frankly. Maybe with the exception of recently, but it's so difficult to compare recently with back then because of the different number of television stations. The complicated aspect to it wasn't, did people like it? The complicated aspect to it was the fact that in the third of Graham Williams' seasons, ITV went off the air for two months. And so Doctor Who, oh, right, yeah. and so yeah. Doctor Who's audience doubled for two months. Yeah, I mean, sixteen million people watching City of Death. It's like you can't really. That's you know, that's not the average. <laughs> if that's it just a, if it hadn't a, have been for the ITV strike, the audience figures would probably have hovered just under ten million throughout the entire Graham Williams era, which is where they were before and where they went back down to eventually afterwards average just under 10 million whereas during Hinchcliffe's time the average was like over 10 million but you know still pretty good though yeah John Pertwee mm -hmm. average across the entire John Pertwee is perhaps 8 or 9 million really right. yeah I think I don't have figures in front of me so I'm only doing this no, for no. but you know and Patrick Troughton averaged like 5 or 6 yeah and William Hartnell started with maybe 5 went up to about 11, 10 or 11 average during his second season and then came back down again. But, I mean, three years of averaging around about 11 million, which is probably what Inchcliffe and Holmes managed, is about as good as it got. I think Graham Williams has been much maligned his era and I was probably one of those growing up thinking it was a bit rubbish. Well, that's there. the trouble. But actually, is... I've, re I've looked at all of those... Um, stories over the last half a year or so um and we re kind of reviewed them with a different light and i've actually really enjoyed them a lot the haunts of nine was, was the one that i gave in oh well you know that's gonna that's rubbish i went and watched it and i think i said on this podcast the last time i, I did watch it and i actually thoroughly enjoyed it and it was just such a good laugh and it yeah. was quite it was such fun well this is the thing and that disappeared like a season too later you know if the kids Completely. are watching doctor who for the scares something like the horns of nymon if you're the right age you still are going to get the scares this is the thing you grew up in you have memories of the sort of tail end of Finchcliffe and holmes right or even all of Finchcliffe and holmes so of course as you get older you start to notice that things a aren't the same b aren't as realistic as you thought they were and so on and so forth. Some of the performances aren't so good. Some of the script could do with a bit of work. You don't notice these things when you're six. No. You notice them when you're 10. And you really notice them when you're 14, 15, 16. So, of course, your perception is, hmm. you know, modified by the way you're changing in age. But to a grown-up, to an adult, right? If you sit your kid down in front of, say... Uh, random example mask of mandragora or you sit your kid down in front of random example claws of axos 
or you sit your kid down in front of, say, the creature from the pit, as an adult, who's just kind of keeping half an eye on the telly to make sure they're not seeing anything they shouldn't see, you probably find Mask of Mandragora a little bit dull. you probably find Claws of Axos daft and fun. And you probably find Creature from the Pit a whale of a time. Mm. You know? And that's... It's fun. a lot funnier. A lot, yeah. lot funnier. But, uh, I mean, but we, we were talking in depth about a few of those stories, I think. And Creature from the Pit was one of them where we just said, well, you know, that last episode could have disappeared to be honest so that there were the first three episodes well episode great. two and three because it disappeared as well really <laughs> but that's it that, well, episode that two and only... three nothing happens whatsoever it's no, that... all in the first and last it episode is really, that isn't it? And that's right that's what it was that's what we said but um and that's that's the problem with the graham williams era i think there's every single one of those stories could easily have had one or two episodes knocked off and it wouldn't have made any difference whatsoever well, that's all... probably true of all of doctor who so it's not like this particular period was any different, really, from any of the others. I mean, you look at the six-episode John Pertwee stories, most of those yeah. could have gone down to that's, three, that's to be Mind honest. Mind of Evil I've just watched, and yeah, that could have been knocked down a couple of There's a, I mean, a real lack of uh, classic monsters as well in the whole yeah. movie, isn't it? Apart from Sontarans and Daleks. That's it, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, but the same is also true of Hinchcliffe and Holmes. Yeah. You look at the first year, which is the stories that Barry Letts and Terence Dix Mm -hmm. left them, and in the second year and the third year, well, are there any classic monsters at all in the second and third year? Classic to that period. Uh, Actually, you think uh, the only classic monsters at that time were Daleks and Cybermen, weren't they? Suntarans are still quite a new creation. Okay, are there any... In in seasons 13 and 14, are there any monsters who've been in the show before? Any at all? whatsoever no the master Mm. that's it Mm. so you've got two and the master is villain yeah rather than them so you've got you've had two years before graham williams where you haven't had a Mm. single returning monster (laughs) not one Mm. so it's not like graham graham williams was taking over the show and i can't imagine that Graham Williams was a Doctor Who fan. But I, I also can't imagine that a busy television producer and writer and everything else had time to sit down on a Saturday night and watch Doctor Who regularly anyway. So he'd probably seen it. I mean, he, he knew what the programme was. He probably had a fair working idea of how the programme worked. But his best experience of Doctor Who would be the period immediately before him Mm. when he knew he was going to get the job or whatever or that he had the capability of having a look at. Mm. So if he'd have had a look at some scripts or maybe they had some two-inch videos that he could go to a screening room and look at he wasn't going to see classic monsters he was only going to see a period of the show where there were none. And let's face it, in Invasion of Time they only dragged the Sontarans in because they needed something quick that they didn't have to make themselves. Mm-hmm. Sorry, it's just a shiver went down my spine when you said that. Um, was it Graham Williams' idea to do the key to time? To do uh, an overall uh, yeah. arc? Oh, this so, is where I was coming to. Well, is that, yeah. Point of credit, yes. Well, story it, arcs. First a few story- weeks ago, we talked to Matt West. Mark and I did. And he's not a Graham Williams fan. And he said that he thought Graham Williams had a don't-care-will-do attitude. And Mark and I disagreed. And here's why. Here's the thing. Graham Williams, far from not caring about Doctor Who, Graham Williams is the only producer who's come in with a plan like that. Mm. Even Barry Letts, when he took it over, and Barry Letts had lots of interesting plans for Doctor Who. And Barry Letts is probably the only producer in the classic series entire run who consistently came up with ideas and themes and also technical things to try and make the program better. Barrelettes is the only producer who at every level of the production had a hands-on approach and wanted to make something consistent of the program. All the others, even Hinchcliffe and Holmes, they were just making stories. Mm. They were just making one story mm. one week and mm. another story mm. the next. Yeah. There's no, apart from the fact that Robert Holmes is kind of gets fixated on the Time Lords, and so you get the Time Lords popping up in Genesis of the Daleks, Brain of Morbius, 
And then, of course, Deadly Assassin. Yeah, you get that very small yeah. time ring trilogy. But that's, that's not a consistency. It's just a fixation. So Graham Williams is the first producer ever, because even Barry Letts didn't really do this. He had this master season, but that was not quite the same thing. And mm. Graham Williams wanted to do the key to time his first year there. And it was only because, you know, being a novice on the program, he didn't quite have the courage to go for it. And of course, Robert Holmes was still there. So there were already some scripts coming in. And then Terence Dix's script needed replacing at the last minute. And in the end, doing the key to time in that first year just wasn't practical. So the first time it was practical, he did it. And it was only because of... I'll say this, and it's not quite true. I mean, a little disingenuous, but it's only really because of the budget problems that he had in season 15 and 16 that he didn't try something again. Not necessarily something of that ilk, but he didn't try something again the following year to have the same consistency. And in fact, in his third year, and this is how much he did care about the programme, he said, right, the first two years I've been here, what's happened is, and it's not that the money was running out, it's that the way inflation works is that £5 on a Monday will only buy £3 worth of stuff on a Wednesday and a quid's worth of stuff on a Friday. So although they had the budgets and they allocated the budget across the season, by the end of the season, the budget they'd allocated to that story was in real terms only worth half what it had been when it had been allocated. Mm. And of course, this was a period politically when he hadn't, he, he could never have expected this his first year. And then the second year, he couldn't have expected it to have worked in quite the same way. Mm. So in his third year, you know, because you think if that's going to happen one year, it's not going to happen the next year as well, because the government can do something about it, right? Well, they didn't, and so it did happen again. <laughs> so both of those first two years, you end up finishing on two or three really cheap and nasty-looking stories because there's just no money. Mm -hmm. So the third year, he actually said, right, this year we are going to make sure we don't run out of money by the end of the season. We'll do the cheap ones in the middle, Horns of Nyman and Nightmare of Eden, and we'll save the money for the end so we can finish on something that's spectacular, nice story, lots of location. What happens? We get a strike. Yeah, and of course, they do the location. They do one of the three studio days, mm. and that's it. And so we never did get that story. So that, so that finished on even more of a damp squib than the previous two seasons mm. had, because at least the previous two seasons had finished on a story that was meant to be last, <laughs> even if it didn't look like it was meant to be last. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, if you're going to accuse Graham Williams of not caring, you've got to look at the evidence. No, absolutely. He cared enough to bring the key to time to it. Yeah. He cared enough to try and impose sort of money restrictions on that last season so that it should have gone out with the bang rather than mm -hmm. a whimper. Mm -hmm. He did care to do these things. What was Graham Williams' big problem? Tom Baker. Mm -hmm. Graham Williams' biggest problem was he just... He's kind of a weak man. He didn't like confrontation. He didn't like yeah. he, he didn't like stress situations, I guess. I mean, I don't know him and there there are occasions when he stepped in and you know, last minute rewrites to get the invasion of time and city of death done. He mm. he's there at the script editor's house helping these guys write the script. So it's not like he doesn't like pressure, but there's a kind of pressure. Mm. I think I got the impression with Graham Williams that isn't mine pressure. That's kind of a positive pressure, but, it, but negative pressure, mm. he couldn't deal with it. So if you've got Tom Baker, who's playing up yeah. and that's personality. And I get the feeling Graham Williams couldn't go with that. And then negative pressures with the budgets, in spite of the fact that on the third year he tried to do something about it, 
you failed hideously on the second year. I mean, if you can imagine that you have to get everything done before they turn the lights out at a certain time at BBC Studio, and you've got the script there that you've been working really hard with the you know uh, the script writers to try and get it finished. You've done all the shooting scripts, you've done all the you know the lighting shots and everything. It's all ready to go. And then Tom Baker decides to just suddenly say, "Well, why don't I come in over here and I'll I'll scrap that line and say this line instead, which will completely put everybody else's lines out." I mean, that's the kind of pressure you really don't want as a director or as a producer or anything really so he had to deal with all that especially if he's from what you were saying the evidence is that he was somebody who was thinking outside the box um where whereas you've got the Hinchcliffe era where it was all about story it was all about content which is a bonus in itself but when you've got someone like williams uh literally changing the structure trying to change the structure of the show to breathe new life into it um, it'd be nice if he had both at the same time, obviously, and yeah. that's probably why he I think he, he was quite brave. I think I, I, I doff my hat to Grant Williams now after watching the seasons again, and um, I think there's a lot of strength in what he did. Actually, it, it was it was let down a bit by production values and um, and fandom uh, echoing badly through the years and and then putting him down. You can't watch it too seriously. No, you can't. You really, really? can't. And it does, Even... does feel different. I mean, I can't imagine. Can you imagine a Cyberman story being in his run? I can't. Imagine him having a Cyberman story, and but that's what I like. Something like the Reboss operation, right? Can you imagine that in, apart from, and this, uh, I'll the give what, an example sorry. now. That the Reboss operation, did you say? Reboss operation. Oh. <laughs> I didn't say Reboss, you that's, do. That's what I used to call it. <laughs> yeah, so did I. But can you, can you imagine the Reboss operation during Hinchcliffe mm. or during Barry Letts? Not Barry Letts. I could imagine it through Hinchcliffe, but yeah. it would be, be a different beast. Oh, uh, yeah, massively. I mean, no, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not saying can you imagine it being a different beast during somebody else's show, but I'm saying can you imagine that story as it is during anybody else's? Mm, no. and, and the only example of something like that is Carnival of Monsters, and that sticks out from the other poetry. He's like a massively not sore thumb. But you know what I mean? Colourful one. Carnival of Monsters <laughs> is head and shoulders above any of the other stories from that entire period of the show mm. in terms of, you know, the levels that the story works on. There's nothing Audacity. else like it. Mm-hmm. I, I absolutely love that Key to Time series. Oh, yeah. And I would give him credit purely for that series, if nothing else. In that he achieved that. That was the peak of his. Uh, <clears throat> it's the keys and marionettes with bells on. <laughs> what was it? Keys and marionettes with bells on. But can you imagine any of the other producers in any of the other periods of this show, apart from maybe the historicals, but doing something like Androids of Tara, where they're running around on horseback with swords and stuff? No, that was great. Wasn't it, it was great. <laughs> great, and you absolutely felt like you were going to another planet. It was great. But I mean, obviously, it was, it's blatantly ripped off from a book. But you know, that's uh, Hinchcliffe was doing that with um, old films and things and uh, old Gothic novels. Well, yeah, this is something else I was going to bring up. Going back to the subject of get rid of the violence and bring in the comedy, and I'm saying that that's an oversimplification. That's not exactly what happened, is it? Because no. let's face it, not all the Graham Williams stories are funny in inverted commas, and not all of them are non-horrific. But what he did do, and we did speak about this before, so we don't need to go into it too much, but what he did do was whereas Hinchcliffe and Holmes had been ripping off old horror movies, and what they were doing was ripping off the tropes and the story beats without... If you if you take an old film like Dracula or one of the Mummy films or Frankenstein, and ignore the novel that it's based on and just look at the film itself because the film is based on a novel it still has a consistency of storytelling and it still makes sense there's a kind of logic an internal logic that runs through the but if you just take some of the scenes some of the story beats from those and mangle them up and hybridize them with a kind of science fiction concept and all this kind of stuff things like brain and morbius make absolutely no sense whatsoever but it doesn't matter because it still works, right? Mm. But then if you go back to looking at books for your storytelling, you do end up with a logic and you do end up with a consistency in the storytelling. And it's not like that they were all ripped off books, but it's just that the kind of stories that they were telling relied upon a more three-dimensional characterization. 
So you couldn't have told the stories not making any sense because the characters would have had to work out of character. And given that the characters were at pretty much the forefront of what the writers for Graham Williams, Anthony Reid, Douglas Adams, perhaps a little less so, but it's still there. So it's an entirely different playing field. And it might not be as exciting as the Hinchcliffe and Holmes period. It might not sit in the memory quite so well. But it is a period of the show where you can put any of the stories on. And once you're five minutes into the story, you're not going to get any of these great leaps of logic. Mm. You're not going to... It's the consistency. You put on the Androids of Tara or the Reboss Operation or, well, any of the stories from, you know, the creature from the pit. And it follows through on what it sets out to do. And even Hinchcliffe and Holmes didn't always do that because if you look at stuff like Pyramids of Mars and I just mentioned Brain and Morbius and I'm not just saying Pyramids of Mars has got a bad last episode because it's such a cliche to say it's got a bad last episode but these stories don't make any sense. So if you do watch them and try and take them seriously rather than just enjoying them for what they are by the time you get to the end of the story your brain's doing cartwheels just to try and keep up with what everybody's doing. And you don't get that with Graham Williams. You put on Graham Williams, you have a nice, easy time just watching the characters, just watching the story. Mm. Yeah, it's all to do with the journey. <laughs> Never that last episode for me. <laughs> Which is what I kind of miss from the new series. Oh, I don't know. Oh, do you mean the length of it? Yeah, yeah. I do miss it. I, I have noticed just a quick interjection now. I've rewatched the whole of the last season as well. Um, Stephen Moffat Series 7 Yes And um, Very interesting to Feel That It was Almost going back In time With its pace My son pointed it out And said These are running Much more slower These are much more slower These episodes And I went yeah. Series 7 Yeah Yes it's they are. Series 7B Second set Yeah second And half, I thought yeah. Yes they are I mean I kind of noticed it But it didn't really stick And then I, I looked at it again And thought Yes they are there's I said time, it there, Yeah you did there's, there's time to Chat and talk And you know Hang out the window And have a word With the doctor And all this sort of thing It's really nice It's really nice To, to have that back And what gets me Sometimes Is that some of these People who complain about it Are so used to Making the same complaints That they'll make The same complaint Whether it's true or not they are still saying, oh, it's all snappity, snappity, snap. No time to spend any time with the characters. It's all at a breakneck pace. Mm. And you stick something like the Rings of Akaten in front of them or hide, and they'll still say it. Yeah, yeah. Whether it's true or not. Or even the Bells of St. John. And also yeah. the Crimson Horror. I mean, it all it runs at the Crimson it's Horror. It runs at an absolutely pace. beautiful pace. It's, mm. it's almost perfect. Um, and the name of the Doctor was a, a bit bonkers but it was still achievable in storytelling and pace and understandability is that a word and seeing as you're talking about series seven and stephen moffat and this is a graham williams podcast and i have said this i think i've said it on the podcast or i've said it in print anyway probably both i do see a lot of similarities between stephen moffat's doctor who and graham williams and do you know i'm struck by the thought you were saying about graham williams is kind of a literary science fiction well it's not really science a kind of a literary fantasy or it's mm. more based on a kind mm. of a bookish approach to the material where the characters come first and there's a kind of three-dimensional storytelling mm. well Stephen Moffat's and I've asserted this seems to be more based on kind of annual stories <laughs> or sort of the 40s kind of pulp fiction story but it's still a kind of literature although it doesn't have the depth in fact it is the opposite of Graham Williams in terms of the kind of depth it has. But, having said that, if you're going to take a great big novel and boil it down to four 25-minute episodes, you're going to lose a lot. Mm. So there's going to be a massive amount of characterization in the novel, and you cut it down to 140 minutes, and you've still got a lot of characterization there, but not as much but you've got enough characterization to fill your four episodes because that's how much you were able to keep. And although um, they're not adapting books, mm. or at least they did a little bit, but, you know, it's the same approach. Something like the Reboss operation shows how much Robert Holmes had put thought into the characters. And often you'll just get a line which tells the whole story by itself because Robert Holmes has thought of this mm. and has written this whole story in his head. And here it is in this line. Right. You come at it from the opposite perspective, Stephen Moffat's kind of stories, and each one of those is based on a really simple, strong, 
idea, not a concept, not a. It's not like where, um, say, Russell T. Davis was saying, yeah, right, I want this, 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 and this, and the story I want you to tell with it all is this. Yeah. With Stephen Moffat, it's like, right, this girl thinks she's a girl. Really, she's a Dalek. Expand to 45 minutes. Oh, here's a spaceship with some dinosaurs on. Expand to 45 minutes. Because you've taken such a simple idea and spun your story out of that, how do you spin it to 45 minutes? by expanding on the characterization. So you take like a 10-page short story and expand it to a 60-page script, and it's all characterization. So in the end, although one has started with a lot of characterization and has narrowed it down into his time frame, the other one started with very little and expanded it to his time frame. But what you really get, they both meet in the same place. They, Unlike the Russell T. Davies which Russ T. Davis himself is great at writing character, so he got away with it. But I think somebody lesser than Russell T. Davis writing Russell T. Davis' Doctor Who would have made a pig's ear out of that because the characterization would have been lost. But he's, like uh, Robert Holmes, very deft at getting big ideas across mm. in a very quick space of time mm. in terms of the characterization. So Russell T. Davis got away with it, and that's perhaps why some of those episodes really weak perhaps the ones that he didn't work his magic on mm. quite as much. I think the Stephen Moffat stories are stronger for that, in spite of the criticisms they get, because people look at the snappy dialogue and say, oh, it's all snappy dialogue. It's not just snappy dialogue. It's snappy dialogue and characterization and mm. decent, mm. interesting story. And for me, Stephen Moffat's stories have all felt the right length, whereas Russell T. Davis mm. all felt squashed into 45 minutes. Mm. Because the Stephen Moffat ones have a smaller idea expanded to fill a greater space, they fill that space much more fluently than Russell T. Davis' stories did. Mm. I've spent a lot of time talking on this podcast. Well, you, no, I agree with you. I think it's <laughs> season seven, um, while we're talking about it, you're right. If you look at the kind of filmic episodes that we had with Amy and, and Rory and uh, and all of the Impossible Girl kind of adventures, they are. That, that's what I've, I've been feeling, that they are the right length. Um, which has been odd because I I, I always thought there was there were, forty five minutes was just not enough for Doctor Who and we always needed to have two episodes and when we were hearing that there weren't going to be double episodes um, in the seasons I was a bit I was worried because I like that kind of double you know the empty child and all that sort of stuff it just it it feels right you've got a cliffhanger you wait till the next week you've got more time to expand the story you can go elsewhere with the story if you want to like Stephen Moffat did do but actually I've come around to this way of thinking again, whole stories in one 45-minute package. Because it, they because don't it, try to bite off more than they can chew. No, it's, ab- oh, it's no. about right. They've got. Yeah, you say into these annual stories, they are. Yeah. You look at Series 6, because this is not an innovation with Series 7. You look at the girl who waited, the God Complex, yeah. and although people don't like it, the Curse of the Black Spot, the Doctor's Wife, all those stories fill the 45-minute slot perfectly. Yes, they do. Without, you don't get to the end of those episodes and think, sometimes you get to the end of the episode and you'll have liked it so much say I wish it had been longer (laughs) but you don't get to the end of the episode and think that needed to be longer no I mean the girl who waited is perfectly timed perfectly paced Mm -hmm. all of those episodes were I think that's why Mm -hmm. and Mark's not here so I can say it without any comeback (laughs) but I think that's why I don't like series 5 as much because I don't think he nailed it then I think he nails it with series Mm 6 I think that's why series 7 is Although not all the no, stories right. are so strong, yeah, yeah. but as a sort of consistency of approach. Well, if, you, if you think about the two-parter in Series 5, it didn't work. I mean, it ended up being, it was essentially two... Two single-parters. Two single-parters. That's what Moffat likes to do. Yeah. And to be honest, the idea of him knocking the two-parters on the head altogether. In fact, if you look at Series 6, there is a five-part story in Series 6. It's just that two of the episodes happen to be at the start two in the middle and one at the end. Mm. And people moaned about that. The kind of people who say, oh, I wish Doctor Who was still six episodes long, moaned about the fact that Stephen Moffat wrote a five-episode story and split it up throughout the season. <laughs> you know, it's like you can't win, can you? You cannot win. Even through the RTD years, the two-parters, the only ones that I thought that really worked were the series enders. I Empty Child could have been a single episode, I think. Um, and certainly Aliens of London felt like it was filling space 
A lot of the Russell T Davies two-parters have got one 25-minute expanded to 45. Yeah. And then three 25 minutes contracted to 45. <laughs> it is literally almost like a one-part episode followed by the entire rest even, of the story. Even the Satan Pit, I watched that fairly recently. In that, and that, I, I liked it a lot more than I did when it was first broadcast, actually. That was one that had always kind of passed me by and I enjoyed it a lot more. But it did feel like it, I thought, not much happens in over two parts. The first episode of that, and they managed to disguise it pretty well, but the first episode is almost all exposition. Mm. People telling each other about stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit embarrassing, really. When you <laughs> think about what they're doing, everybody's just walking around telling each other what everything is. Yeah, mm. there is that. There, I mean, you get highlights, of course. You know, where he's talking to himself on a rope in the middle of nowhere. I liked all that. That's in but the second episode. Exactly. Mm. <laughs> but, um, no, the the Empty Child, just very quickly, talking about the, the, the length of uh, episodes, that was the Moffat two-parter, yeah. interestingly enough. But, mm. again, it was timed but it's really, really only, well. It works nicely, yeah, but... Um, the trouble... there, I didn't think there was any flim-flam in there at all. There well, it does underrun by five minutes on each episode, and mm. both episodes, or at least the second one, might be both, I'm not sure, have got extra stuff that they had to go back and film afterwards because it was underrunning by ten minutes. <laughs> and it is a very slow story, and Simon's right, it probably could have been told in a single episode. Yeah, probably. But it, But that is... The only Stephen Moffat two-parter that isn't two one-parters stitched together, if you like. Mm. If you if you look even at Silence in the Library, it's the first episode is what's going on in the library, and then the second episode is Donna Noble has been saved to this weird universe and all this kind of stuff. And although it's not quite as distinctly two parts as say um, the Angels two-parter or the Big Bang and Pandorica. It's still two pretty distinct parts. Mm. One thing I will say about... Um, we are talking about Graham Williams still. Right? <laughs> no, 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 but one thing I will say Doesn't about Empty Child is the cliffhanger at the end is probably the most pure classic Doctor Who cliffhanger With in the, the best whole resolve. of the new, in the whole series, of the new series. Yeah, I really? think it's got the best resolve in the whole series as well. The resolve? Yeah. Oh, that would never have happened in the classic series. I know, I don't care. That's just so good. I don't know, it's a brilliant resolve, but that's... Bed. Yeah, but go to your room. Go to your room, sorry. <gasps> go to your bed. Doctor Who, right, I'm going. Bye. Excuse me? <laughs> Rufus Hound, where are you? I know, it wasn't the fact that you misquoted it, it was the fact that what you misquoted it as. Go to your bed. Oh. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, that was a bit Many Freudian there, Lee. I know. That's because I'm looking at the time and I know I've got to go. Uh, yeah, okay, we'll wrap it up. Um, what was I in the middle of saying? I can't remember. But what we are saying is, as a whole with Graham Williams is there's far more... It's underrated. Yeah. Underrated, yes. It's not brilliant. It'll never be brilliant. But in terms of purely enjoyable television, that has more depth than you probably would imagine it to have if you're only remembering it from when you were a kid. It's probably, it's probably maybe apart from Barry Letts, uh maintains a level of depth across the entire period more than any other period. Certainly, you know, all the other periods, great inconsistencies from one story to yeah, another. Yeah, about J&T, the, 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 quo, the quotient of um, ideas against success are stronger within the Williams period than the J&T. And if you look Far at more works. even the biggest failures in the Graham Williams period, things like Underworld and the Horns of Nymon, have got such great story ideas and interesting characterization all going on. If you made either of those two without changing a word of the script, but with the kind of budget they've got these days, you know, these would be among the classics. And it's mm. only really the production that lets those two stories down. And I also think that, you know, there is a lot of, like you say, fun in it. And I don't know whether it achieves that amount of fun in those three years that he had. Um, you know, anywhere else, anywhere right? else until say nowadays, with, yeah. with a lot more fun injected into it and balanced well. That's another thing that reminds me of Williams in Moffat, by the way. But yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Shh, right, we better cut, knock it on the head because you've got to go. Well, I've, I've got, got to go to a go. radio show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm off. So, if this was a slightly shorter episode, 
We'll probably be longer again next yeah, week. We'll bring out more emails next time. But Christ, I say we're going to talk for 60 minutes every week, and most weeks we talk for about an hour and a half, so we should have a shorter episode <laughs> just to balance it out. <laughs> just for my own sanity, if nothing else. Yes. Thanks, I, Mark. I, I didn't hear that. It was that, Mark? <laughs> Did you not hear it? It's that from... Was... I think it was a free thing with McDonald's or somebody like that. <gasps> well, Mark's, hey. Mark's been off to Cardiff this weekend, hasn't he? He has, yeah. No, he's back now. He's back now, yeah. Mm, he's gone maybe to touch. He's back now. He just couldn't be Next podcast, asked to he can come. talk about he's it. Been, he's been touching, touching, everyone, touching the console. I think everyone's been except us three, isn't it? But we'll, we'll be going on my stag night, won't we? Yeah, that's the idea. Stag weekend. Yes. We're all going. Oh, okay. Yeah, and everybody's invited. <laughs> Yeah, so we'll, we'll see all 1,000 of you out there in Cardiff. But only blokes. If there's any lady listeners, they can't come. No. Unless they're strippers. Is that the thing with stag nights? <sighs> We're not doing that, are we, Simon? We're no, not no. like that. We're not that kind well, of... We are going to the cabaret night this, sun- this Saturday, aren't no, we? No, we're not going. We're running it. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, that's another story. And on that note, <laughs> uh, I was JR. I was Lee. I was Simon. Oh, and next week we're going to talk about maybe season 25. Which is? Silver Nemesis, Remembrance of the Daleks, Happiness Patrol, Greatest Show in the Galaxy. Blimey, I better do some homework. (laughs) Not very nice homework either. Oh, come on. Well, you skip next week and the three of us will do it. (laughs) (laughs) No, I've got to be there. There's not a lot of homework to do. It's in a few episodes. Okay. You must have seen some of those at least relatively recently. No. Happiness Patrol, I think, was the last thing I watched from there. Oh, and you didn't even make it to the end? No, no, I didn't watch it in order at all. And we'll <laughs> speak again soon. <laughs> <laughs>